The original paraphernalia for the flash fiction contest had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Stuart, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Lieberman spoke frequently of making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as little tradition as was represented by the current box. Mr. Garrett and his oldest son Nick hold the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Lieberman can stir the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Lieberman substituted slips of paper for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population was more than three hundred and likely to keep growing, it was better to use materials that would fit more easily into the confined space. The fourth incarnation of the Escape Artist's Flash Fiction Contest is here. Pseudopod is leading the charge this time. Every author may submit up to two original stories of 500 words or less for consideration. Submissions are open now until September 15. The competition will begin in October. The three winning stories will be purchased and run as an episode of Pseudopod. Stories will be published on a members-only section of the forums, so first publication rights will not be expended by participating in the contest. It's easy to become a member. Visit our forums for rules and details at forum.escapeartists.net. To enter, visit pseudopod.submittable.com forward slash submit. Good luck! and may the most horrific win. Podcastle, episode 380, for September 8, 2015. Spirit Forms of the Sea, by Bogie Tokach. Rated R, contains violence and disturbing imagery. Hello, it's us again, your friends at Podcastle, here to weave you another tale of wonder and amazement. But just before we do, there's two announcements. The first is about Artemis Rising 2. As we did this year, in 2016, escape artists will celebrate Artemis Rising, a special month-long event across all three escape artists' podcasts featuring stories by some of the best female and non-binary authors in genre fiction. Podcastle is open for submissions for the entire month of September 2015. Who can submit? Anyone who identifies as a woman to whatever degree that they do. Non-binary authors are also welcome and encouraged to submit. Send us your best fantasy fiction between 2,000 and 6,000 words. Please follow our usual submission guidelines on how to format your story and submit through our special Artemis Rising submittable portal. For more information, please visit podcastle.org and get writing. 
The second announcement is a call for narrators, but it's a very specific one. We're looking for narrators who are Kenyan or Kenyan Asian. And just to be really clear, we're not looking for people who can do a Kenyan accent. We're looking for narrators who actually are Kenyan or Kenyan Asian. If that's you, or if you know of someone who fits the bill, we would love to hear from you. Please do get in touch with us at editor at podcastle.org. Just a quick reminder that at this time, all escape artist narrators are volunteers. And now, on with the show. Step right this way, folks. Today, Podcastle is very proud to present Spirit Forms of the Sea by Bogi Tokach. It was first published in Sword and Mythos, a collection of short stories by 15 writers drawing inspiration from the pulp subgenres of sword and sorcery and the Cthulhu mythos. Seed stories of adventure, of darkness, of magic and monstrosities. It was edited by Silvia Moreno Garcia and Paula R. Stiles. Bogi Tokac is a neutrally gendered Hungarian Jewish person who's recently moved to the US. Our fiction and poetry have been published in venues like Clark's World, Apex and Strange Horizons, where he also won last year's reader's poll in poetry with an animated poem, You Are Here slash Was, Blue Line to Memorial Park. Our website is at www.prezi.net and you can follow him on Twitter as at bogeyperson where he also tweets SFF short story and poem recommendations by diverse authors on a semi-regular basis. Your narrator for this story is Setsu Uzume. Setsu spent her formative years in and out of dojos. She also trained in a monastery in rural China, studying Taoism and swordplay. She is a member of Codex and SFWA. While she's dabbled in many arts, only writing and martial arts seem to have stuck. You can find her on the web at katanapen.wordpress.com and on Twitter at katanapen. Links will be in the show notes. But now, enjoy the story. Spirit Forms of the Sea by Bogi Tokaj The newcomer strides across our camp, I see people halt for a moment, sensing the power and turn their heads. He flaunts the strength within him, spreading it across the top of the yurts, making a cold wind blow. Hoina is the first to snicker. She smooths her hair back and chuckles, not even noticing she just smeared her head with flour. A spectacle is brewing. I step into the shade. I cannot share in the general cheer. The stranger walks up to the chief's tent and declares he's come to fight our Taltush. The chief's guards pass a glance between them, and I know they are struggling to hold back a laugh. Declarations like this never fail to amuse. At least the newcomer has the forthrightness to declare a fight. There are those who sneak around, attack our horses, attempt to weaken our livestock. These days, Rega notices them before we do. Sometimes we even miss the beginning of a battle and have to come running. The guards do not even bother to lift the flap and ask for approval from the chief, one of them simply walks away to find Reka. The stranger is beginning to realize something's wrong. He shifts his weight from one leg to the other, looking orphaned without a horse. The cold wind dissipates. 
People gather around the space before the chief's tent, silently, nodding to each other. This is their regular entertainment now, more exciting than the wrestling matches, more frequent than the annual Kobura. Everyone thinks Artaltos is easily bested because Reka is so young, but the spirits choose whom they choose, whenever they please. I think that in a few years people will wise up, word will spread. For now we watch. I watch too, though for entirely different reasons than most of the crowd. I hope the shade hides my face. Reka steps forward from between two tents. She looks dazed, and one of her braids is partly undone. The guard must have found her asleep. She frowns at the stranger, and her eyes narrow even further in the morning sunlight. He smiles at her the way he would smile at one of his younger sisters, or even one of his own children. My stomach turns. Then he lets loose the spirit form, and it ascends to the sky, a majestic white horse not matching his pedestrian self. Horse forms are very common, but he seems to be good at guiding his, making the horse gallop around the sky, bringing in storm clouds and distant thunder. It's almost as if night has returned once again. Reka watches without much emotion. This one seems to be good at the rules, at least, parading around his form in the right way for the right amount of time. Reka nods, just barely, her face grim. Most of the other onlookers probably fail to notice this. They aren't close to her. More importantly, they weren't there to see what I saw barely a few seasons ago. Oh! Her eyes grew large. She ran up to me and hugged me fiercely. Dalin, I'm so glad it's you! I felt slightly embarrassed as I hugged her back and shared in her happiness. Chief Oitoin picked me, is all. She pushed herself out to arm's length and beamed at me, so much like a child. Dad promised me he'd pick the best. I'm so happy! I nodded and liberated myself from her embrace. Well then, let's start packing. I never liked it when people praised me for my martial prowess, even though I knew that most seasoned warriors struggled to match my feats. Maybe it was just a dislike of praise. I never liked it when people complimented me on my thick braids or my raven-black eyes, either. Reka danced around as she gathered her items. I sat by the entrance of their yurt, barely inside, the place of a stranger. Her father sat on his seat and eyed us dispassionately all the while. He only spoke when Reka finished. Dalin, I trust you'll take good care of her. I wouldn't dare do otherwise, I thought, but remained silent and only bowed my head. Forkosh, the elder Taltosh, came up to me as I parted from Reka, heading out to say goodbye to her mother and her younger brothers. He sneaked up to me. Even with my keen hearing, I hadn't heard him move. I shuddered when he spoke up right by my left ear. He always enjoyed doing this, showing how far the spirit's power extended, demonstrating that with their aid he could hide in plain sight. The spirits have called out to her, but something's still missing. No one's claimed her as her own, and she still doesn't have a spirit form. She knows, but it's best you don't raise the issue with her, Forkash said. I nodded. Chief Oitoin had already explained the situation to me. My friends in the furthest reaches of the world might know what to do. Don't forget to tell him I sent you. He looked around, grinned at me, and then added, And bring back a bag of seashells, you know, for decoration. I wasn't really sure what seashells were, but I trusted him that they weren't overly heavy. We rode along the western border region, all the way south. After a while, we left our tribal settlements and reached the land of the Croats, a decent folk with a language entirely impenetrable to most of us. 
I belatedly realized that the reason Uitoin chose me was probably not because of my skill at horse archery, though that must have played a part too, but my knowledge of the language. I used to fight Croats at the borderlands, but the area was peaceful now, and we could find lodgings with ease. We even made our way through the rocky mountains without any issues, but the sea only appeared in front of us after the very last turns. This isn't the end of the world, Rika pouted, looking at the small town from afar. It's not even Venice. I wanted to slap her. This is as far as our influence extends. Hardly much influence in that. Just a network of friendships. Would our might ever grow so strong as to reach here, invade these lands? I thought invasions distasteful, but many did not share my opinions. And what was wrong with not being Venice anyway? Venice was our enemy. She must have been aware of my thoughts the way her kind often are, because she sighed softly and apologized. We rode into the city and found an inn and took care of our horses. People were talking about the tax the Venetians had recently imposed, the Istrian pirates haranguing fishermen, and the boxes of odd-looking but sweet-tasting fruit that traders had brought in from afar and were selling at the market for what was unanimously deemed an exorbitant price. When we'd passed through the Croat country, the land changed ever so slowly. But here by the coast, everything had abruptly become different. New sights, new smells and tastes. Even the air felt unusual. We were out of our element here, land dwellers, horse people. Some of the peasants who had come into town to sell their produce stared at us, marked by our unfamiliar clothing, our eastern features, but no one outright glared. The borderlands weren't close enough for open animosity to surface here, and I was relieved I wouldn't have to use the dagger in my belt. There was only one problem. I had no idea how to find the Taltos Yutos, friend of Forkos. I was sure he'd stand out in any local crowd, and yet no one seemed to have heard of him. I'd inquired after him at the inn, at the market stalls. I even asked the city official. After our second round of tries at the market, Reka pulled me aside and said, Maybe he doesn't want to be found. Can that be done? In a place where you are a stranger, your difference obvious at first sight? Sure, Reka nodded. It's one of the more common arts. I sighed. Then we're lost. Forkash didn't tell me anything about how to find him. Reka frowned, concentration on her still childlike face. Maybe he only wants the right kind of people to find him. I was about to interrupt her and ask whom that might be and whether we qualified, but she lifted one hand. I think I can... She fell silent and moved around her hand. Was this the method they used for finding lost objects, livestock that had wandered off? Could that method be used to locate a person? Not just any person, but an experienced Taltos who might not want to be found? Found by the right kind of people. It suddenly made sense to me. Reka broke into a fast-paced walk, not a run outright, but close. She kept on frowning, her right hand palm up in front of her. We walked past the large well of the marketplace, and she stopped for a moment, stared at a fish stand selling octopus, or squid, I wasn't sure, shook her head, and moved on. We turned this way and that, away from the sea. She came to a sudden halt, closed her eyes, moved her hand around, and then set off again, nodding. She stopped in front of a small, crooked door in a side alley, hesitating. I reached over her shoulder and knocked. A stout, long-mustached man opened the door right away. Well met, well met, he nodded at us without smiling. Do come in, I've been waiting for you. 
It was one of their arts, I understood. When this man said he'd been expecting us, he was telling the truth. He closed the door behind us and switched to Moyor without any prompting. I am Yutosh, son of Bulchu, and you are? I got the impression he knew exactly who we were, but I explained to him nonetheless. Reka fidgeted on a creaky wooden stool while I paced the room. Yutosh was looking increasingly gloomy. I have little to offer you, he finally said. But there is much crossing these ports from far-off lands, and many discoveries to be made. Perhaps the spirits will give a sign. Meaning, the spirits hadn't yet given a sign. I nodded, a sour taste in my mouth that felt similar to the salt in the air. Yutor sent us away with a bundle of food, the flavors of home. He couldn't bring himself to apologize in words for the lack of advice. I listened to the rumors, hoping they would be telling. I shared the day's harvest with Reka as I would a basket of fruit. The pirate ship marooned off the coast, the noble ladies from Venice visiting the town on a frivolous outing, the official making off with a chest full of gold in broad daylight. Nothing. Everything tastes of olives, Reka complained. We were sitting by the seaside, looking at the gently lapping waves tinted orange by the setting sun. I like the taste of olives, I said and shrugged. She huffed. Her further complaints remained unspoken. It's because they cook with olive oil, I added after a while. I had complaints of my own. However amicable I tried to be with her, the fact remained that I was her guardian here, more than twice her age, and a warrior of many battles. Her mother, instead of her own back home. Our funds were running out, and the only thing that had occurred to me as a solution was to rent myself out as a sword for hire, or, preferably, a bow. Another long silence. I decided I might as well break the news to her. She nodded. I expected as much. I'm sorry. She didn't say we should return to our land. Oddly enough, at that point, it felt like a good sign. Perhaps the spirits were finally compelling her to do something about her predicament. What good was a Taltos without a spirit form? I nodded gravely. I had little idea the spirits were compelling her to do something else altogether. I'll go with you she said. I gasped. You what? I... I... she stammered. I'd never before heard her stammer. I can make myself useful. I can ride a horse. I'm good with a bow and arrow, and I have Taltosh blood. And no spirit form, I mentioned with forced nonchalance. She was close to tears. I'm working on it, all right, but I can't respond to a call if there is none. I can't take you with me. I'm supposed to guard you. She stood, trembling. That's exactly why you need to take me with you. You can't just leave me alone. I can leave you with Yutosh. That wasn't a real offer. Yutosh hadn't seemed like the kind of man who could take good care of her. Morose, occasionally hostile, nothing like the friendly coastal Croats. You're not going to do that. I also stood. No, I'm not and I can hardly leave you with a stranger. I can fight. I can. Have you ever been on a ship? Her face told me all I needed to know. I sighed. Maybe we can find a job on land. Deka whispered to me in Moyor. But Dalin, he thinks we're all going to die. Very promising, I whispered back, grinning. But Dalin, shh. The man was standing on top of an upturned wine barrel, giving his recruiting speech. 
Finally, a warrior's job on land. I didn't want to tell Rika that I was made just as uncomfortable by the thought of serving on a ship as she herself had been. A nearby harbor was haunted by a monster of confusing and contradictory description. It apparently had tentacles, claws, wings, all manner of monsterly paraphernalia. It sounded like an octopus crossed with the dragon of western lore. Or was that a squid? The dragon octopus sounded imaginary, but Rekha had said the man was sure we'd be killed. I signed us up, despite her protestations, finally quelling her with, We don't need to come back to the gathering tomorrow if you want out. Long, thin clouds striped the evening sky. Reka kicked at a rock, playing with it. She tried to hide her anxiety, but I'd seen scores of people before a decisive battle and knew better. Do you think it's a real monster? I asked. It sounds like something conjured by an enterprising Taltos. It's hard to hold a form that doesn't exist in nature, Reka said, not looking up from the rock. Maybe that's why it sounded confusing, I shrugged. Or maybe it's just that I don't speak the language that well. If the Taltosh is not bound to the spirit, it's hard to hold even the shape of a real animal, she said. And I don't think it's a real animal, from what you're saying. For all I know about sea animals, it could well be one. Then why was the man so afraid? Surely they know what lives in their seas, Rika retorted. I had to acknowledge she was right. She was sharp, quick-witted. She'd make for a great Taltosh to succeed the elderly Farkosh. If only we could... I shrugged, banishing the despair. We're going to fight it either way. She turned around, peered up at me. You're not going to change your mind, right? I shook my head. Combat was what I did best. Care for a round of practice shooting before the sun sets? I asked, and began to walk away from the sea without looking back. There were about a dozen of us, mostly sword fighters. Reka and I were instructed to stay back. The single remaining eyewitness had told us that the monster would rear up when assaulted and that it had many large eyes, clear spots of vulnerability. Of course, the eyewitness had also said it had flimsy wings, and that sounded blatantly wrong. What use would a sea animal have for wings? In any case, I hoped we'd be able to aim our arrows at the eyes, blind the hostile creature to help the sword fighters cut it down. I was relieved we'd be able to stay out of trouble for the most part. What would Chief Oitoin say if I had lost his eldest daughter, the future Taltosh of the settlement? I resolved to guard her with my own body if need be, but I knew she could hold her own. The previous evening she demonstrated to me that she indeed had skill with the bow. I only had to take care that she wouldn't panic at the most inopportune moment. I cheated, she told me out of the blue. Huh? I glanced up. She was sitting across from me in the open carriage. The arrows. I made them hit. She bit her lower lip. I can't aim worth a farthing. What do you mean you made them hit? I was confused. With... She made a vague gesture. You know. Ah, I understood. Look, I don't care if the spirits help you hit the target, or your Taltosh blood, or your skill at handling the bow. As long as it hits. She looked dubious. Trust me, I've fought many battles. What matters is not how you fought, but whether you won, and won with honor. I wasn't really sure how honor came into the picture when assaulting some sort of oversized sea animal, so I said nothing further. Rega was also silent. The carriage rolled on, shaking and noisy. We'd have to walk the last mile of the way to be able to strike with an element of surprise. 
and I wasn't looking forward to it. The air was growing unspeakably hot. I wished I had lighter clothing. We didn't expect hours to rain down on us, after all. The two carriages halted and we clambered down. The drivers looked anxious, eager to get away from the harbor, even though it was still beyond an arrow's shooting distance. The sea was calm. Reka hissed and clutched her stomach. What is it? I turned to her and whispered. She straightened up, pain in her eyes for a moment. I... I think I've heard it, she whispered back. The monster? I looked back at the harbor. The call! Her voice was insistent. The spirits! Just save it until after the battle, all right? We'd best not get distracted. I turned back to her and she nodded, acquiescing. She could be obedient if the need arose. If she wasn't scared away by her first battle, then who knew? She could even become a good warrior. Not only a Tautos who fought using a spirit form, but also an archer in her own right. It all hinged on the first impressions. Our leader signaled and we sneaked closer and closer to the harbor, using whatever meager cover we could find. We had to attack in broad daylight because the man who'd hired us claimed that the monster gained in strength and size after nightfall. The two sword fighters at point had almost reached the sea when the surface moved, bulged. A round, flat head rose above the waterline, its skin a shiny dark green. What emerged didn't look like a spirit form, it looked like a real animal. But I could feel the power emanating from it, hitting me in the gut, hurting. I understood Rekha's hiss. She'd simply experienced it earlier, being much more sensitive to spirits. I reached into my tegas and readied my first set of arrows for quick draw. It opened its eyes. My hand froze mid-motion. It saw into me, right into me. And I knew it wasn't an animal, not in the ordinary sense. Not like the wind horse either, majestic but ultimately connected to the human soul. It was akin to the Turul bird, the ancestor of all Moyors, a vast, strong, and carnivorous spirit. And it walked this earth, swam in the sea. Who were its people? Whom did it claim for itself? No one was moving. It seemed to me that no one was breathing. It was as if the water in the sea had stopped flowing. The monster rose, and I knew with a cold certainty that was beyond even fear that it wanted to feed. Tell them to stop, Rika's voice whispered in my head. My mouth opened almost unbidden. Stop! Don't move! Don't attack! I didn't know the proper way military commands were phrased in Croatian, but my words had an immediate effect. Or maybe no one could move either way. I'd like to think I made a little change. Reka walked forward among us, a collection of fleshy statues. You have awoken, she said, a statement with the tones of a question. Then, you've slept for a long long time, as if talking to a child. It towered above us, blocking the sun, and our heads followed it until our necks bent all the way back. My lungs burned. Here I am, she said to the creature. You called. I wanted to scream at her, drag her away, protect her with my body. There were promises, conviction stronger than the sea. My legs moved, my neck snapped forward, muscles smarting from the sudden motion. I wanted to shout, but my larynx felt stopped up and my tongue numb. 
Every step was a battle against unimaginable force, the world itself pushing me back. Dega stopped, turned back to look at me in amazement. Allow me, she said, her voice apologetic. Please, I was called. I gasped for air, the pressure easing up a little, probably because I'd stopped straining forward. It called me, she said. It wants to bind me to itself. This? This monstrosity? I didn't even dare to utter the words because I knew even the smallest expression of my fear would nourish its hunger. Finally, I managed. It wants to eat you. It sounded so pedestrian, so mundane. She pursed her lips. All spirits want to eat us. The Taltosh is someone who has enough strength to feed them. I didn't want to hear this. I was helpless against it. I brought you here to help you, to protect you. My throat tightened, this time not from the mysterious force, but from the emotion swirling inside my body. She spread her hands. I stared at her in the shadow of the giant. Her braids had come undone and her face was so open, so vulnerable, and yet no longer childlike. I vowed myself to this, she said. I was born for this, chosen for this. Why was our way so cruel? We offered up our own young. Why had I never seen this before? Only those see who need to see, Reka murmured as if it was a veil lifted from my eyes. People talked of the spirits cutting the Taltoj apart, pulling the body together as they saw fit. How figurative was that? How literal? But most spirit forms were of peaceable animals. The horse, the bull. They might seem intimidating, but everyone knows they eat grass, not flesh. No one offered themselves to the turul, a bird of prey. No one, save for someone in a half-forgotten, ancient legend. It only led us as an all-powerful figurehead, a creature of the sky that had come to us from the stars. Then why would she offer herself to this monster, trust it with her soul? She shook her head. Trust is unimportant. I need to sate its hunger, if only for the smallest moment. And future moments, again and again. It rippled through the sky. I fell to my knees. Did that come from her? The creature was so vast, I felt it was beyond our earthly cares, outside our world, even as it swam in its waters and trod its soil. Don't blame yourself, she said. I was the one who stopped you. She turned around and walked into the sea. I could only watch, helpless. The water was to her thighs when it started, and I more felt than heard the first crunch of bone breaking, resonating through the earth itself, invading me through my knees, my legs touching the ground. Then she fell face forward into the water ever so slowly, and the sea muffled the sounds altogether, drank up the blood. The men had left, staggering away in twos and threes, making their way back to the town on foot even in the sweltering heat. I stayed. The monster did not acknowledge me. I knew it was busy digesting. Did it eat the flesh? Did it eat the soul? What need did it have for such a small body and a mind it could easily eclipse? 
Did it want a servant on land? Someone who could spread its fear, provide nourishment at every step? Or did it have motives entirely incomprehensible to us? What was the end point? When the creature allowed me to stand, I stood. I paced. I railed at it. I begged it to give her back to me. I shouted and swore. I yelled for the Turul to appear and bring down its wrath from the skies, but the Turul never appeared. Maybe I wasn't strong enough. Maybe it was intimidated. Overpowered. I shudder to think. Still, I screamed. I'd like to think I made a change. I know it's probably not true. Finally, the monster left, submerging itself in the clear seawater too shallow for such a giant, making its way for deeper regions. As it vanished from my sight, the water washed her ashore, unbroken, if only in shape. She sat up slowly, gingerly, and we walked back to the town in silence, prepared ourselves for the long trip ahead. Her words came halting, hesitating, but even still with newfound maturity. We ended up staying for a week, getting ready ever so slowly, with regret. The creature did not return to the harbor, and the man who hired us showered us with wealth. Among our gifts for the people back home, I bought some choice seashells from enterprising children. The challengers started showing up soon after we'd arrived in our camp, drawn by the youth of our new Taltosh. I shake my head slowly. Rega steps forward and the crowd murmurs before quieting again. She is among her folk here, but she doesn't draw on our strengths the way it is customarily done. She discards the advantage. I could never be a Taltosh, but even I can feel the way the stranger's stomach contracts, the way his fear engulfs him just for a moment. Reka disregards this. She always plays by the rules, and it is not yet time to attack. She looks to the distance, over and above the clouds, but reaches down into the depths. The creature rises, and had I not seen it with my own eyes on that day by the seashore, I'd assume it to be unreal, a figment of the imagination as easily dissolved as the clouds, as ephemeral. The monstrous shape holds. Tentacles twist around, eyes move to survey the land, sacks bulge and deflate. The stranger is breathing fast, a hoarse, wheezing sound that almost sounds like the whinnying of a horse. His spirit form tries to gallop away, but in an instant, the sea creature is upon it, tentacles whipping, claws ripping into ghostly flesh. Dark blood streaks the sky. The sea creature triumphs, even faster than the previous time. It changes shape, unfolds gooey wings, semi-transparent against the sunlight re-emerging through the clouds. It gloats, sitting atop the disemboweled carcass of the horse, head tentacles rippling in a soft motion. Does it smile at us? Then it vanishes, and only the stranger is left, lying in his own vomit, his trousers wet. Reka sits down, shaking, and someone puts a warm, thick guba across her shoulders. She pulls it close to herself and closes her eyes. I don't think she's upset. The man will live, though he probably won't fight anyone ever again. It's only that calling up such an unusual spirit form takes a lot out of her, and she looks exhausted. It's only that, and nothing more. At least, so I tell myself.
welcome back. We asked Bogey if there was anything readers should consider or might find interesting. He said, according to recent genetic studies performed by the research team of Istvan Rasko, the ancient Hungarian ruling class was predominantly of Asian origin, while the commoners were mostly Europeans. Since the protagonists of this tale are members of the local elite, the Croatians noticed that they looked different from them. Present-day Hungarians are predominantly European. I just thought this was interesting, he says. Now, I don't know about you, but what I didn't catch on my first reading of this was the nature of the sea creature. Remembering that this story is from an anthology drawing on the pulp subgenres of sword and sorcery and the Cthulhu mythos, what was that sea creature? Cthulhu? So she gave herself to Cthulhu? I mean, what? Boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, I wonder what she'll be like in a few years. I don't think that's going to end well for anyone. Her tribe might be really happy with her fighting prowess right now, but, well, where's that going to go? But maybe I got that wrong. What do you think? And speaking of what you think, let's look at what folks said about episode 369, The Chimney Borer and the Tanner, by Thorea Dyer. It was read to you by the very accomplished Pamela Payne. Those who commented weren't too keen on this one. By the way, you do know that you can comment, right? Not sure whether I've ever mentioned that before. <laughs> it's pretty easy. Head over to forum.escapeartists.net and register. Anyway, with this story, some liked it, but most felt the sex scene was very problematic. Unblinking said, hmm, I felt like there were too many loose threads that I never gathered into a complete picture in my head. Why hadn't she a voice? I know her mother took it, but why? Why are these people different? Why does peering with a demon keep your soul from being pushed out? I don't know, it didn't really all come together for me. Also, I found the sex scene with her sister's husband disturbing. The character's only reaction was being disconcerted at her soreness and didn't really seem to consider the ethics of having sex with her brother-in-law through deception. Trish M. wondered whether we were even meant to like the protagonist. I'm not sure how much we're supposed to identify with or approve of the character, even though she's the protagonist. I think it might be better to think of it as a cautionary tale, as in, here's why you shouldn't have any dealings with witches. Child of Tyranny had some interesting thoughts. Something I realised is, as she reaches womanhood, she seems to be a mere shadow of the person we met before, and so I begin to wonder, is that the way each witch is trained? A burning nugget of anger that their soul recalls? Through life after life are they stalking the gods? Are we to view the detachment the birth mother pushes as merely useful, or was it fighting against the cycle witches go through? I think I'd like to see this world fleshed out further. Now, of course, there was more discussion than that, which you can see for yourself over at the forums. Well, folks, we've come to the end of our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, including our brilliant and uncomplaining audio engineer, Peter Wood, thank you for stopping by and sharing with us in listening to the story. We'll be back next week with another. See you then. 
Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva and Exile. To find out more about them, check their website at shiva-in-exile.de. Podcastle could not be without the generosity of our donors. If you already donate, thank you so very much. It's with your amazingness that we pay our server costs and our authors. If you don't, well, you know you can support us from as little as $2 a month, right? That's less than half a grand a bucket of sugary milk from Starbucks. Regular donations help immensely. Or try a one-time donation. Either way, you can donate at the Podcastle website. Go to podcastle.org and find the Support Us section down the right-hand side of the page. If you can't donate, and goodness me, aren't there lots of people asking you for money? We completely understand. You can also help by telling others about our proud flying castle. Write about us on your blog. Do people even have those anymore? Hmm. Mention us on Facebook or Twitter. Leave us a five-star review in iTunes. That actually really helps a lot. Take care. See you next week. Quote from the Venerable Friedrich Nietzsche. He who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. And when you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you.